0: I like regularity, and I like feeling good about myself, so I love the community coming together, like groups of people coming together to overcome one big thing, and I know it doesn't have much political talking points, but everything is so political in our lives, and I'm heavily involved with politics. I like having a nice break with movies.
1: Let's ruin it for you. <laughs> Welcome to The Pointless Century,
2: where we discuss films culture, and politics in an attempt to figure out what modernism was, what the
0: 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered.
2: Tonight, we'll be thinking about the anti-Semitic origins of the vampire, the role of the culture industry in the superhero and sci-fi genres, the effectiveness of representation in film, and, as always, fascism.
1: We're here to talk about the movies Blade and Black Panther, the two highest grossing black superhero movies in history, separated by 20 years. I'm your host, visiting assistant professor Frank Fucile. I use the masculine pronouns he, him, and so forth. And I'm joined here tonight with three student researchers. We have our historian.
0: Rachel, pronouns she, her.
1: Our poet and artist.
2: Hi everyone, my name is Anna Wendorf. I go by she, her.
1: And our futurist. Hi, I'm Leah,
3: and my pronouns are she, her.
1: Let's talk about Blade and Black Panther. I have my hobby horses for these Rachel, let's start with you, since you're the superhero movie expert.
0: I freaking love both of them. And there's a lot of similarities between them. And I was happily surprised. Really?
1: I think that they're diametrically opposed. I'm amazed that you think that they're similar. Oh, I have like
0: a whole bullet list of okay, how Okay, go for similar. it. Go for it. I also especially like the strong female characters.
1: Um, yeah, I think that the standards for that change over the 20 years between these two. There's a pretty low bar in 1998.
0: Yeah. So these are like vague differences, vague similarities, but they still are similarities. Different in hiding from the outside world, a.k.a. the Wakandan bubble, the hidden elders, and the vampire world. They're kind of similar. I mean, when you really get down to it, not so much, but looking from the outside, they're, they're a little bit similar. The fight between natural and half-members like with killmonger as a wakandan descendant like he's not really wakandan but technically he is but then also natural born and half vampires there is that contention between those two is frost right
1: Yes, Deacon Frost is the main villain in Blade. And the other sort of more established vampires look down on him because he was not born a vampire. He was turned vampire, which gets into all kinds of questions about vampire lore. But then there's
0: also somebody working from the outside, Killmonger and then Officer Krieger. They're recruited by outside forces to get in. They're not insurgents. Killmonger is definitely an insurgent, but, well, Krieger could also be an insurgent for the human world. There's also deep spiritual ties, like the Book of Erebus and La Magra. The deep spiritual ties and turning into something, especially with the heart-shaped herb, where T'Challa gets his powers as the Black Panther. Powers can be given or taken with the EDTA or the heart-shaped herb. You can give and take certain abilities. And then improve and expand successes, like Wakanda opening up and then a Blade wanting Karen to create a new serum so that he could continue doing what he's doing, like improving what they know and what the audience is fighting for. And then come back to strong female supporter, strong Black females, Black excellence.
1: So you you see a lot of thematic similarities. One thing that I think is really interesting to hear you describe these movies is it is obvious how much of a fantasy head you are. And Leah, you're familiar with this because I brought this up when we were talking about some of the Black speculative fiction and then also when we were talking about Blade more specifically. I really am a big proponent of the idea that the main difference between fantasy and science fiction is in the literal description of things. Empirically, the detail might be exactly the same, but if it's described in a science fiction way, then that makes it science fiction. If it's described in a magical way, that makes it fantasy. Like these info dump scenes where you have Karen explaining how the serum works, you know? Karen is the info dump character the way that Katon is the info dump character in Nova. Or in Black Panther, it's T'Challa's sister, Shuri.
0: And she's going to be the new Black Panther in the upcoming movie. And I'm here for it because it follows the comics and even after Chadwick Boseman's death, they're still following the comics and they're respecting his passing. And I freaking love it.
1: Well, you're a sucker. You're not wrong about that. My point being is that those characters, Shuri or Karen in Blade, they're basically doing that info dump role. It's the role that in the Christian Bale Batman movies is played by Morgan Freeman. It's the role that we're very familiar with seeing in James Bond movies where it's like, here, I'm going to explain the various technological gadgets to you. The existence of that info dump role where somebody is explaining the science. And in Blade, some of it is also carried by Chris Christofferson's character of Whistler, though he's doing a different thing. He's doing the good honky thing. But the existence of that role is, to my mind, what makes them science fiction. And I think it's really interesting that Blade is a science fiction vampire movie as opposed to a fantasy vampire movie, because nothing is explained in terms of magic. It's always supposed to be very technical, very biological, very like we have these particular types of swords or these particular types of bullets, and this is how it kills the vampire and so on and so forth. Leo, what thoughts do you have?
3: I really liked Blade, actually, a lot more than I thought I would. I don't know how like how much I thought I would like it, but I really liked it. I think the style was really cool with the martial arts and the sword fighting. Um, it is very fashion. much a kung
1: fu movie.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the atmosphere, too. Was like, the cyberpunk atmosphere was really cool. And I like the idea of the vampire underground that's just secretly there and beating off the humans and they don't know. I think the whole idea was really cool.
1: Yeah. Wesley
3: Snipes did his well, own stunts. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that.
1: But he couldn't have done his own hair because <laughs> somebody somewhere with great, great clipper cut skills did all those sort of, what I would call like tribal tattoo-esque designs in the back of his hair.
2: I thought that was actually a tattoo, and you're saying that's hair. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's just the way that the, I don't know what you'd call like a fade or whatever is clipped. You know, you can clip all sorts of designs in that. And I always thought of that as like a very 80s thing, but, you know, once you're into like science fiction, you can do it in 1998, and it's cool. His
0: glasses are cool, too. I know you like sunglasses, but those are so 80s. No, they're more 90s. They, I think my mom they are too. very
1: much 90s. In my experience, they're very much 90s. The way that they are sort of... they little... Yeah, the smallness of them seems to me to be very 90s, this sort of gogglishness. And we spent quite a bit of time in the Afrofuturism class talking about the cyberpunk aesthetic of this movie. It's not really a cyberpunk movie in any technical sense, but it does have that aesthetic that you'd see in The Matrix a year later. The black leather trench coat, the cool kill a million people hero, It's just a thing of this period. And it is also allied to the whole rave scene milieu that we see. It's what in its era would be considered very goth. So I think, strictly speaking, we'd call this aesthetic cyber-goth. But I have to put a caveat on that, because I assume that whatever is goth now is a bit different. A podcast called Vicky and Cerise Rate All the Movies did this one recently and vicky osterweil who wrote a fantastic book called in defense of looting had a really good take on this that i kind of can't help but borrow her first complaint about this is that the whole point of vampires is supposed to be that they're hard to kill
0: it's like Like buffy
1: Like, monster hunter movies are kind of working at a disadvantage here because it's like they don't know what genre they are. It's obviously not horror because horror only operates in this field where there's inevitable doom. And a monster hunter movie is always about killing monsters, so it's more like an action movie type thing. But she also had a deeper, perhaps more disturbing critique of this that I want to hold off on for a minute. But let's talk about the fucking kill ratios in this movie, (laughs) which are pretty outrageous. (laughs) I don't even know what the body count is. I think the IMDb usually has a body count if you look for it hard enough.
0: It's like Buffy Summers.
1: Tell us a little bit about Buffy. I don't have any knowledge of Buffy.
0: So I only started watching the first season, but it was a little too 90s for me. Like if I didn't really care and if it was in the background, I might play it. But she has like superhuman strength where she can fight vampires more easily. But like she can basically kill them with a roundhouse kick. You know she's going to defeat the vampires and all the other things because she's in this void or whatever. It's not even funny. Like You know she's going to kill them no matter what the suspense music is like.
1: A roundhouse kick that's pretty disappointing she really kills vampires with a roundhouse kick
0: something like that because i remember her doing like Wah! a lot and like a lot of it is sex appeal
2: too well of yeah parties.
1: i feel like that's trans historical rachel
2: get every <laughs> ill of the body why don't you
1: <laughs> yeah it's a, a specific character by character kill count <laughs> i'm amazed that blade only kills 65 vampires i feel like it should be at least twice that
0: i feel like the opening he gets a lot of them
1: yeah i think that's where the
0: bulk of it is the, and also the freaking like emergency water for fires and it's blood and it's just so disgusting.
1: it's called the blood rave scene it is
0: well i didn't know that some people think disgusting. that this is like
1: the greatest scene in the whole movie
2: I am one of those people.
0: Uh, I yeah,
3: I, re- I really like that scene, too. It was, it was yeah. like the horror movie kind of thing. It's so
2: cool. Yeah. And, and you know, if we really want to talk about it, like, okay, before, you know, when you show up, obviously it's a good time. It's a good party. But you add the blood in there and it's just, oh, it takes it. I mean, you're not supposed <laughs> to, But it takes it you're to You're not
1: a at a vampire rave until you're literally bathing in blood.
2: I would go there in a heartbeat, I would. And, you know, on a more real level, it made me miss going to concerts and things like that, too.
1: Yeah, this takes a physical contact to a new level. The disease vectors, they're just outrageous. Yeah.
0: So many nightclub scenes, you know? There God. was a similar thing in Buffy. It was a nightclub where all the underage people went, and it didn't have the blood. I kind of like it, I kind of don't, but I've seen so much of it, and it's so similar to the Pulse nightclub. And it's just hard for me to enjoy it after that, where there's mass killings at raves or clubs or whatever.
1: Oh, okay. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, clubs aren't fun anymore. I can't remember the last time that I went to a club or a dance party of any sort, but I'm old now, so it doesn't really matter. But these, these are the kinds of scenes that I remember. Just like a couple years after this movie was made, people would talk about how like, oh, you know, nobody does shit like that anymore. And scenes are dead, but that's kind of how you know of scenes is like people always complaining that they're dead, you know? <music> are vampires supposed to be cool or are they supposed to be gross? This is a big deal because this is basically the two things we get about vampires. No aspect of the lore ever seems to agree on this point. Are vampires supposed to be cool or are they supposed to be gross? We've talked about Nosferatu, which is the sort of epitome of the gross vampire. But the cool vampire is also obviously pretty prominent. Which are we getting here?
0: I think we're getting the mix of both. We're seeing all kinds. We're definitely getting the cool parts with Blade. I also feel like it's kind of
3: both. I thought Uh the vampires were cool. The Blade was also cool. And they both have like similar amounts of kill counts. So, (laughs) which is actually better.
1: (laughs) I think that what we get of the vampires is, I mean, it's really in the realm of vast conspiracy theory, is it not? Well, they control real estate, they control everything about the world, and here Blade is trying to stop them. And then we have simultaneously the plot of Frost trying to take over the vampire world, and I guess he wants to become the vampire messiah by summoning, I don't know, some great vampire god, and this is the part of the movie that sort of loses you, isn't it?
2: We've talked about this before, and we've talked about it with Wonder Woman and Birds of Prey, and I really tried. And when I say I really tried <laughs> to give this movie a chance, I was like, okay, you know, these people whose opinions I generally respect are saying that this is a movie worth watching, so I'm gonna try to give it a chance. And I don't know, I just see it like almost every other superhero movie or, you know, this genre movie that I watch. I just see things repeated, and I also see it trying too hard with certain aspects. mm
1: mm-hmm. I think it nails its formula, but I can't say that I enjoy it either. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I tacked this onto the Afrofuturism syllabus sort of as an afterthought. I don't think it fits the Afrofuturist framework by my understanding of that, but part of the whole point of the class, as with the way that I always teach genre studies, is that genres are often something that are basically made up by the consumers. So... Part of the thing of having a community of science fiction fans or people who might say that they're interested in something like Afrofuturism is that they ultimately get to determine what that is. So that's what a large part of what we argue about in the class. Black Panther is probably the one cultural product we have that is produced with the explicit intent to be Afrofuturist and unanimously received in that way and not really interpreted in many other ways. So I thought that giving an example of a, again, blockbuster science fiction superhero movie with a black lead from 20 years earlier, actually, hopefully allows us to learn something about it I think that it is a well-made movie in terms of it knows what it's doing. It hits all its marks. It basically does the thing that it's trying to do. It does the thing that it's trying to do quite well, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily enjoy it personally. But if Leah and Rachel enjoy it, that's great. Lots of other people do too. I know that Matt Wise is a big fan of this movie. But anyway, Anna, it didn't do it for you.
2: No, and I have yet to find a movie in this genre that doesn't appear as every other superhero movie or, you know, movie in this genre has appeared to me after I've watched it. Yeah, so I'm still on the hunt for it. And actually, I wonder, you know, this is a tangent too, but, you know, Rachel said that she was looking forward to the sister as the later Black Panther. And I wonder if they'll take kind of the road that we saw with Wonder Woman. And it definitely has the potential to be great, but it also has the potential to have all the same problems that Wonder Woman has if you have a female, you know?
1: I think that you on these matters are sort of a bit more close to where I am with this, which sort of like when we talk about war movies. I'm not sure that either of us actually believes that these genres are redeemable in a political sense. They might be enjoyable as sort of popcorn entertainment, but I don't think that either you or I think that they're like politically redeemable. And we'll get to that when we get to Black Panther, because I see some major problems with that.
0: I like regularity. And I like feeling good about myself. So I love the community coming together, like people coming together to overcome one big thing. And I know it doesn't have much political talking points, but everything is so political in our lives and I'm heavily involved with politics. I like having a nice break with movies.
1: All right. Yeah. Let's ruin it for you. <laughs> so, like I said, I'm going to borrow Vicky's point here. Vicky's point about Blade, which I think is actually pretty ironclad, though I kind of hate to have to bring it up now, is that vampire lore goes historically in two directions, mythologically speaking, either anti-Semitic or homophobic and the more traditional of those is the anti-semitic where vampire lore is very much allied to the blood libel the conspiratorial claim that jewish people are kidnapping christian babies to eat them or drink their blood most recently popularized by QAnon though so you can replace jewish with whatever other group of people you happen to hate it still ends up more or less being an anti-semitic conspiracy theory the idea then is that the traditional vampire mythology is really just a different way of talking about the anti-semitic conspiracy theories or anti-witch sentiment even of the middle ages and later And it's really just a different version of that same thing. Vicky also notes that in some of the later vampire movies, I suppose in film, I think that she's probably thinking of stuff like Interview with a Vampire in books, I think maybe stuff like Exquisite Corpse, like Poppy Zebright type stuff, you get vampire lore as sort of allied to a depiction of the queer vampire and so it ends up being more or less homophobic. Though in some of those, again, you also get that distinction of the gross vampire versus the cool vampires. So in some of those stories, if you're supposed to be on the vampire's side, then it can go the other direction. Vicky's point is that these are sort of the two traditions Of the sort of dark side of vampire lore. And her point is that in Blade, we really do get this fully anti Semitic version of the vampire. Well, how are the vampires described? They control real estate, they control the banks they exist in our world secretly without us ever seeing who they are. They pull the strings of the governments and so on and so forth. And She had grown up really loving this movie and thinking of it as a sort of innocuous, cool action movie and coming back to it with the sort of a heightened political awareness that she has now. She felt like she had to sort of call it out and be like, oh, this is actually like some really dark and dangerous shit or at least it's dressed up some dark and dangerous shit to make it look fun and maybe we should be critiquing that what do you guys think do you think that that's a productive critique or is it something that's maybe more historically relevant than it matters to this movie specifically or i don't know what are your thoughts
3: i definitely wasn't thinking about it that way but something i've heard somewhere else i think in a youtube video or something I heard someone interpret it more like the vampires were greedy, you know, the count where he's really rich and he controls everything. And then vampires were the upper class that were like sucking the life out of the working class. So I I guess that's kind of
1: connected to the anti-Semitic parts. Well, it is insofar as that a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric is a way of kind of misdirecting class consciousness. So instead of talking about economics and saying like, well, here's one working class and here's one ruling capitalist class, you focus people on one specific sector of the capitalist class who might, for instance, happen to be bankers and happened to be Jewish and you talk about it as an ethnic thing instead of talking about it as a class thing. And then that lumps in any number of working class and petty bourgeois Jewish people with the capitalist class and directs people's anger towards that and leaves the Gentile capitalist class alone. I mean, this is like literally how Nazism works. You claim to be a working class movement, but you basically appropriate that critique of class as a critique of race or ethnicity or however you want to call that category. I mean, insofar as this movie is concerned, and it's operating in a way where, I mean, I guess you might want to ask yourself, are the vampires really pulling all the strings here, or are they just as much a persecuted minority as their metaphorical counterparts? Maybe there happened to merely be some powerful vampires and actually the bigger questions, if we want to talk about class critique are outside of that. But, you know, even going back to like Count Orlok in Nosferatu, right? The way that Count Orlok is depicted is very much in line with those anti-Semitic tropes that we see in Nazi Germany not so many years later, even down to him being depicted as familiar with rats, like familiar in the magical sense. I agree with you, Leah. We can read this as a class critique, but anti Semitism always intends to muddy class critique with racism. What do we think that the movie's obsession with the purity of blood and ancient scripture and stuff like that, what does that have to do with any of this or nothing? I think that when we were reading this as an Afrofuturist text, we were probably more inclined to see the question of blood and purity as sort of an identity question within the framework of human, non-human, black, white and so on and so forth. Like the idea, for instance, that if you're a little bit vampire, then you're a vampire. It is sort of a one-drop rule, so to speak.
0: So I was gonna say about the one-drop rule, because that is pretty eminent in my mind. Yeah. But there's also so many pieces of literature and films that discuss the purity of one's identity. And I think it's very important that we address it like we are right now, because it's reflecting our current culture it may be, I don't want to say it's like people having trouble with integration of minorities in America, but
1: But that's that, what it is, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. We have, I don't know if I want to say a new wave of white nationalism in this country right now. It's not new. It's more just like it's resurfaced in yeah. ways that it hadn't for a little while.
0: We live in a cyclical world.
1: We're specifically in a reactionary age right now. I'm inclined to see the reactionary age that we're in as reactionary of like Chip Delaney's world. I'm inclined to see, like I said, the turn is more or less 68 to 69. And it wasn't nice. And that basically we've been living in a different place since then. And whether we want to use the term neoliberalism or whether we want to use the term anti-civil rights backlash, like that's kind of the world that we're in. And there have been certainly great gains made in that world. I mean, for Delaney writing in his era to note that, oh yeah, I'll say that there's this great drug that everybody uses and it's legal, like that's a big deal. And marijuana is already legalized in a number of states and we're talking about the possibility. That maybe even in Wisconsin it will be, but even as we see the demographics of the country shifting and more ethnically mixed, more racially mixed relationships, and more people who are identifying as multiracial, more people who are identifying as LGBT, even in amidst all that. This is in a culture of backlash, and part of that is a demographic thing. Part of that is the fact that so many of the people who rule us And I am at the point now where I'm not even willing to say represent us because I do really think that that is kind of the problem. And I see that from both parties. Yeah, sure, they won our votes, but they'll also be like, well, you know, how dare you talk shit, blah, 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 blah. Like, I do see these people as rulers, right? Some of the people who rule us are so much older than us. And that is a demographic problem. That is a problem of chipped ladies' generation. I hate the two-party system it wouldn't be such a huge problem if we didn't have this huge mass of people from age 50 to 80 that are just dominating the political spectrum that's really the big problem is it's a demographic problem if you enjoy the pointless century you've probably asked yourself how do these rat bastards pay for this shit? when we started a year ago during the pandemic we literally weren't paying for anything and now we certainly can't afford the licensing of a classic 90s deep cut like this. But we are funded partially and currently by the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire. Though given that I'm a visiting assistant professor, we have no idea how long that'll continue for, or funded for the summer at present. But we're going to need your donations to continue forward. Join our Patreon! we're going to talk about Black Panther. Yeehaw. <laughs> Why is this superhero movie different from any other?
0: So I really like it because it is different from others, and it addresses a lot of different issues that are pertinent in our world, and it's bringing to light a lot of different minorities and different cultures, and it's bringing it to light where young people didn't see representation before, such as strong Black characters on screen that they could turn to. And that's a huge deal because there's a severe lack of representation in our world right now, but it also brings to light that everything's perfect. Sometimes you have to share it also brings up that if we work together and we cooperate, we can do so many more things.
3: I thought it was pretty good. I like that the villain was actually someone you could empathize with and you knew where he was coming from and why he was doing everything. And it also showed how he was actually doing the exact same thing that he hated most about the oppression that he was subjected to.
1: That's actually sort of where I have my biggest problems with the movie, but you know that because I ended up spinning that off into a whole lecture.
2: Listen, I might need an attitude adjustment, but I'm sorry, there are some huge problems with this movie and we need to talk about it, okay? If we're talking about earlier, like we talked about Wonder Woman supposedly trying so hard to be a feminist movie, and if this is a movie trying to be for representation, then I don't know if necessarily they do it in the best way. And, you know, that's partially because of what I'm learning about in my, you know, introduction to world literature and post-colonial literature class. So basically, I think that the goal here is to not accurately represent something, but I think the goal here is obviously to represent something, Wakanda, with care and with thought put into it and i don't know if i can necessarily describe the ways that you know it's problematic but i think in the scenes that we see when they're all together and i think everything from the rituals to various things that we see like that throughout the film i think that's problematic because again not only do you have this factor of this movie trying so hard to be this figment of this cultural piece you know, like Blade, I guess, and maybe Blade is, you know, the kind of a lesser example of that. But even from what I've learned in my cultural class that I'm taking, and I can't speak much on it because obviously we're just starting the semester. But if you take something from a culture and you don't treat it with the most absolute amount of care and respect it comes off in a way that at least to me you know in a way that they didn't intend for it to be
1: and it it didn't work does it just seem cheap to you is that a way of summing up what you're saying here i
2: guess that you know if you condense everything down that's a way of putting it yeah
1: I think that the sort of Afrofuturist perspective on this, the way I see it is that so much of that effort is an effort to reconstruct the unknown. It's an effort to imagine what could have been. And from an American perspective, Black American Afrofuturism This kind of process of saying, well, let's imagine a nation in Africa that was completely untouched by colonialism and maintained its strength and maintained its isolation makes sense. It makes sense in that way that, you know, Leah and the whole class that we did in January was looking at what, say, Sun Ra was doing back in the 60s and 70s. And in the way that when they came and they would play shows in Europe, Europe, French critics and so on would be like, this is a fake imaginary version of Africa. What are these guys doing? Well, because they weren't Africans, because they were Americans, they were black Americans. And their whole political perspective was that they wanted to imagine, they wanted to mythologize, they wanted to piece together something that they had been completely cut off from, completely cut out of. As white folks, we can say like, oh, my ancestors came from this country or even this particular part of this country, and not being able to say that themselves, they took the opportunity to imagine an Africa that could be or would be or that might have been, and using Egyptian and and Nubian symbols and mythologies to do that. And this movie is then again in that Afrofuturist tradition of trying to kind of retrofit and reimagine the Africa that could have been, or might have been, or should have been, or would have been without colonialism. But. I think that perhaps quite rightly, Anna, from a post colonial perspective, this is completely wrong headed because there are, of course, any number of African civilizations that exist, have existed, and continue to exist to this day. And Wakanda represents none of them. Wakanda represents an imagined version of an idealized, untouched Africa a strong Africa, which is to imply that Africa itself is weak, of course. First imagined by a white comic book writer, and now taken up, of course, by Black writers and Black producers and a Black director and Black actors, and certainly very much a Black concept, but also, I would say, even more so an American concept, even more so like African-American in the truest sense of maybe even verging on a type of cultural colonialism in coming back than to claim Africa as its own in a way that doesn't necessarily need to be attentive to the specifics of culture. And yet it is also very easy to be like, well, it is, you know, a science fiction movie. Well, it is obviously fantasy. So we have to ask ourselves, well, how much can we really say that that's wrongheaded? I think that it is to a certain extent in that it's too easy.
2: Well, here's the thing. You have this product, and like Rachel was saying, I'm sure it can be recognized as great for representation, but that doesn't really fix anything, now does it? You still have a majority white, you know, producing these cultural products. And then, like you were saying, even this product itself is still filtered through the supposed, or at least to my knowledge, this system of whiteness. And then, then again, you know, that relates back to our post-colonial point. But again, I see the attempt.
1: Yeah, you can't make the perfect be an enemy of the good, but I do think it is a worthy critique. Yeah. This ultimately, I think, gets into what you and I are going to always, always harp on, which is broader culture industry critiques, which is that if a motherfucker sells you something, then they're being a motherfucker, you know, and there's not really any way to get away from that.
2: Maybe that's why I can tolerate other genres of movies more than these because maybe the argument is to be made that at least from personal experience, especially from this genre, it's even more apparent than you're, that you're trying to be sold something.
1: That's- I think you're right. I think you're right that in the superhero movies, we see the culture industry just completely show its bare face in ways that would have even shocked Horkheimer and Adorno. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. You write down to the action figure tie-in because it's marketed to adults. I think that that makes it even more offensive to someone like you.
0: I totally it, agree with all these things. This movie has lots of flaws in its production, but why I'm so focused on representation is that it empowers young children to want to make changes for the world that their children see in the future because they see themselves on the big screen, even though they don't know how fucked it up it is. That's just for like money point. It empowers them because I see a Black person being strong and making a difference, and that empowers them to make a difference in their own future for their own kids later on and to put themselves in the industry.
2: But does it, though? A Wonder Woman is supposed to empower me as a woman, but actually it has quite the opposite effect. I do understand what point you're trying to make.
0: Because it's not perfect, but younger children will understand that it's not perfect later and try and fix those imperfections. But at least they see themselves being represented to some degree, even though if it's not totally healthy. Well, but I think,
1: yeah, I think the representation is a fool's game, though, because ultimately it ends up filtering everything through, I guess what I want to call an assimilationist frame. There are other ways that we could describe this. It's sort of like when we were talking about Nova, that Delaney can imagine spaceships that travel the galaxy, but he can't imagine capitalism collapsing. He can't imagine a post-capitalist economy. So similarly, I am shocked that a movie which is hitching its wagon to There are other types of people and other types of cultures that maybe we don't even know about. It's not merely a matter of Black representation. It's a matter of imagining a wholly concealed Black civilization. A Black civilization that has managed to evade the ravages of colonialism. And yet, it cannot imagine that that civilization would be anything other than a monarchy. I'm kind of shocked by that. I, and I understand that there's a certain amount of fidelity to the original comic book that's necessary and I understand that in a certain sense this leads me to just be critiquing the whole superhero concept which is like well you gotta have one big swinging dick so there you go you got your king he's a big swinging dick you know but it's so limited so the best we can do with a king is having a good king there's an aspect of this movie coming out in 2018 that I think actually wants to critique that but stops short of being able to do it sufficiently which is that where killmonger comes in then we suddenly realize oh shit the idea that this one person who wins this single combat gets to rule over this civilization might be a problem and then you'd have a situation where somebody who's not such a great guy could be in charge why would nobody have thought of that earlier this seems very much like a trump era movie in that sense why did we not build in safeguards against this all-powerful leader that we have and it says "Shit, we gotta switch dicks (laughs) go off queen
2: listen just because you switch dicks doesn't mean it's gonna be a better experience it might be a worse experience
0: i'm still about the representation
1: I'm not discounting the significance of it. I'm just saying that some people might want it to go further and in different directions. And maybe there are other movies that will do that, but I'm just, you know, I'm leveling a critique.
0: Also because everything never starts out pure and perfect. It never is. So the fact that we have a mostly black cast displaying black excellence, it's seriously flawed, but nothing that starts out to make a difference is ever good in the beginning.
1: Well, and I'm not even saying that it's not good. It's my job to critique things, and so I'm going to do that. And often we'll say in American states, it's our job to ruin everything for people, especially your childhood. When we're doing pop culture stuff, that's where it gets the worst. People could talk shit on Moby Dick all day and all night, and ultimately even people who love Moby Dick aren't going to care. But once we start talking about Transformers, somebody's going to get hurt. You know, for you, it might be Marvel Comics, and no offense, it comes with the territory that like we get to be the big nasty rain cloud
2: first of all what is black excellence how do we define that especially if we're white people and i get it it's not perfect but it still seems to me like just a crumb off of the crust of the culture industry again trying to make money
1: well it always is i don't know there's some difficulty in separating what could be a critique of any movie of this sort from what could be a critique of this specific movie and i think that both are relevant critiques but maybe they're relevant on different levels I mean, you can critique it for being just a moneymaker, but that's also true of every single one of these movies. I
2: should specify, when I say moneymaker, as in, you know, what Rachel's talking about with representation and, you know, trying to make something for someone, I guess that's with every movie too. But you get what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we might also ask ourselves, what kind of an imagined community does this promote? What kind of a world is this leading us towards? I think it's actually quite different from the community that the Marvel movie this is leading to imagines, which is much more like that old school World War II mixed ethnic group ass kicking squad. But that's more useful in terms of an American national product of saying, Hey, you may not look like these other people. Hell, you may not even fucking like them. But you know what? You can work together to kick some fascist ass when you have to. And that is a useful mythology, even if it's still problematic this sort of, and I don't even want to call it decolonial or anti-colonial, maybe it's anti-colonial, to imagine that colonialism had not happened, I think is problematic in ways that imagining how to overcome colonialism is not. And that actually gets to the critique that I think is really significant, which is a critique that I've certainly seen from Black critics, which is that You know, some people, I think with good reason, want Killmonger to be the hero of this movie.
3: I could see Killmonger being the hero. The only reason that he's really the villain is because he kills so many people in pursuit of his goal. He goes to Vietnam, I think, and then he fights in this war for America and basically just participates in this imperialism. So is he really any better than the people who were oppressing him?
1: And he presents his vision of black excellence, if you will, as an inversion of colonialism, basically. Yeah, like fight fire with fire. Yeah, as he lays out his manifesto, he basically says, well, this time Wakanda's going to be on top.
0: If some things were changed, I think I could root for Killmonger to be the good guy because he was raised in an oppressive society that made it impossibly hard for him to succeed. And now he's fighting against a monarchy, which is what America was founded on, to accept a free government. And he's fighting against that, like he's fighting for the American ideals that even though oppressed him, he is still fighting for nonetheless. And he's doing it in a highly successful manner. And he is portraying black excellence because he's going above and beyond what was expected of him as a black male in a white dominated society where he is oppressed. And he's overcoming that and he's creating a huge difference, though it but, may be negative in some Yeah. Way.
1: See, and I see I hear the way that you describe this. This is your liberalism showing in ways that really grates my sensibilities. But that's okay. That's why you're useful as an interlocutor here, because I don't see this having anything. to. I mean, it has to do with black excellence insofar as yes, of course he made his way out of the ghetto yes of course he was in the navy seals but like the outcome of this is not about black excellence the outcome of this is about justice the problem is that to believe in meritocracy is to ignore racism If you believe that only the best and only the most excellent rise to the top and there's nothing else involved in it, then you're ignoring things like class, then you're ignoring things like race. That's not the way the actual system operates. It's the way that we claim that the system operates, but it's not really usually the way that it works. And I think that the fact that we see Killmonger rising through the military actually does sort of indicate something of truth there in that the military is one system in which at least if you're like, On the nuts and bolts operator level, it is more meritocratic, less so in the command level.
0: So are you saying what I was talking about earlier is meritocratic?
1: I think that it is a characteristically liberal belief that excellence is the way out. That by demonstrating excellence, oppressed groups can rise above their past oppression and build a better world. I think that more sustained class analyses will question those things by pointing out the ways that even the best are held back in many ways. That, for example and you would not disagree with this, I'm sure that like black people have to be twice as good as non-black people just to get the same amount of recognition. That's basically what I'm harping on here. Basically, I think that excellence is one part of any liberation strategy. But excellence does not in and of itself lead to equity, lead to equality. And what Killmonger offers us is something more like revolution. And I think that the way that the movie shows that revolution also shows where its bread is buttered, where he articulates something that sounds righteous, and then they make him go too far in a way that demonstrates that he's the bad guy, when actually it's imperialism showing that it hates itself. And this is what makes it liberal to my mind, that it's the system critiquing the system and saying, oh, we feel bad about it being this system, but also failing to imagine anything outside of that system. And this is why it's a Hollywood product. It makes it a productive text, but it's still a text that's very, very open to critique. And certainly from a radical point of view. Because our recording time on this episode got cut a bit short, I'm adding an epilogue on the end here. This is generally taken from my notes in the class I taught on Afrofuturism. But it's basically building off this notion that we saw in the online reaction to Black Panther that, for some people, Killmonger was right. And Michael B. Jordan's portrayal of Eric Killmonger Stevens definitely is congruent with a lot of what we have seen historically from black power and anti-colonialist movements. He claimed that he had been reading Malcolm X, Huey Newton, Fred Hampton, even Marcus Garvey, and he'd also been listening to Tupac Shakur building up to the role. And we certainly see a whole tradition of black radicalism in the part. I think it's a bit disappointing, though, that Michael B. Jordan studied Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker in preparing for this part and saw himself in that tradition. I think that if you were going to look for An analogous role in the DC universe, I would have thought that the character would have been Tom Hardy's Bane in the sequel to that movie, The Dark Knight Rises. I think, very similarly to that character and very similarly to that movie, we see Killmonger sustaining a real critique of the system as it exists, and yet. Being positioned by the screenplay, by the culture industry itself, we might say, as a destabilizing evil influence of going too far, of saying the right thing and then taking it to an evil extent. And the proof of that is that the evil we see is just an inverse of imperialism itself, an inverse of the logic we see in the world. But actually, if we take his statements on their face, Kilmonger offers us a radical negation of the way things are a radical negation of the neoliberal order, a radical negation of imperialism. In fact, a wholesale rejection of history as we know it. And arguably, that's the whole point of the Black Panther universe. That's the whole point of Wakanda. What if history were different? And this is wrapped up in the cool of the super soldier, something that a lot of people are going to find to be fundamentally compromised. And yet something that an oppressed culture can find as a powerful node within a system of oppression. It should not surprise us that underprivileged and downtrodden groups within any society will seek training, will seek advancement through systems like the military. We see this certainly in the American experience. We see it elsewhere as well. It should not surprise us that someone like Eric Stevens would seek advancement or seek knowledge through something like the Navy SEALs. And as I noted earlier, it's one of the few systems in which there is something a little closer to a meritocracy. It is a system in which someone with clear skills, no matter their background, can definitely move forward. And yet, that's not what Killmonger is doing. Actually, Killmonger is much more in the radical tradition of using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. This is a pretty big deal because we can't just take the things that he does to allow him to challenge T'Challa's authority as the sort of poison pill that proves he was in the wrong all along. No, that was all training to get there in the first place. And this really redeems the character of the super soldier as we see it so frequently in the superhero movies, because ultimately Killmonger is all about negation. He has a catchphrase, like so many characters in these types of films. And his catchphrase is one word, one word that's not even really a word. Nah. He is a figure of absolute rejection that is so absolutely cool that it is stoic in its presentation of the horror of the stakes of the world and of one's response to that. He speaks of the royal lineage of Wakanda and he reflects on it and says, nah. He thinks of the ships of the Middle Passage and says, nah. He thinks of the decision to separate Wakanda from the rest of the world and says, nah. In that nah, there is the rejection of the whole liberal presumption of the way things are. Not just the rejection of imperialism, but A wholesale rejection of history as we know it. What if it was otherwise? What if we saw history and just said, nah? And as Killmonger meets that world, it is a wholesale, stoic rejection. It is a rejection that embodies the whole history of Afro-American cool. It is a cold, thoughtful, tough response that stares into the abyss of doom and calmly says, Now, nah. Kilmonger looks over the falls at the edge of the place where he's fought for the throne of Wakanda and talks about the millions who were kidnapped and shipped across the Atlantic to be forced to work. Those millions not knowing what their future would be, and knowing that he was not actually descended from those black Americans, but indeed a Wakandan, and with no small amount of blaming the victim, he claims that in that situation, he would not have allowed such a thing to occur as though he would have fully had that choice. And to that he says, no. Nah. To that he says, he would have thrown himself overboard as so many and we'll never know how many did. That powerful nah is the voice of resistance at any cost. It is ultimately the voice of revolution, and it is a rejection of the world of the film. It is a rejection of our own world that cuts so deep it's really difficult for this movie to square with it ultimately this film can only understand it as an attack on the whole world not a rejection but an active attack and that's why we have these scenes of killmonger sending out attack squadrons that need to be stopped by the so-called good guys in this movie and when we see among those good guys literal cia agent everett ross played by martin freeman we should stop ourselves and say, wait a minute, there's a whole history of this. How dare you dream of a better world? How dare you try to change the capitalist imperialist system as it exists? We, the United States, we, the international order, we, capitalism as it exists and has existed, will step in to make the appropriate decisions to curb such excesses. And what does that mean? It's literally shooting down planes. It's literally a dude paid by the U.S. government to pilot a drone and shoot down some planes that are attempting to liberate the colonized and oppressed sectors of the society as it exists. And so there's a lot that would lead me to recommend a movie like black panther but its resolution is typically neoliberal typically hollywood typically a mealy-mouthed argument for the status quo that presents itself as moderate and to that i say nah to that i say nah you may feel differently that is your prerogative.
0: You have been listening to Professor Frank Cuchile, research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily, and special guest Leah Woodward. The Pointless Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The song in today's episode is Jaguar on the Dirt Bombs album Party Store. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at PointlessScent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tee Public merch and our Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of The Pointless Century.